0: I'm and I'm the Filmmaker.
1: And I'm Leilani Farha, and I'm the Advocate.
0: And we are now in season four of Pushback Talks. Did we ever think that we will land in season four, Leilani?
1: I think we hoped we wouldn't need a season four, that we would be traveling the world, spreading our messages that way, rather than just through podcasts. But-
0: because this is a COVID project, but I mean, now we're getting used to it. Yeah. Even if it's always a little bit hard to start up after, well, I've been away to South America, filming in Chile, hanging out with friends in Brazil, and now I'm back to the cold winds of Malmo. But Chile,
1: you were there at the most interesting, amazing time. Just tell us a little bit, just a little bit, Frederick.
0: I mean, you know, when you land in a place where history is really happening, you feel it everywhere, it's like an energy level of a society. And that's amazing, and you can really feel that everybody suddenly believes that change is possible we can actually create something better for all of us and that was the feeling and it's strong i i I was in chile like 30 years ago when that the same moment Mm -hmm. again yeah so it's it's really nice to compare it and and so it's cool i I will follow up and Mm -hmm. you will you might meet it in a film one day
1: wonderful and for those who don't know there was a major election in chile and they elected a very young very progressive Fellow who has a big job ahead of him.
0: Yeah, I think the most interesting thing in Chile is that actually they have they're writing a new constitution. Yes, and and the assembly that is writing this constitution is the most representative assembly in the history of the planet. So it's fifty percent women, it's fifteen percent uh, native people, and it's also representing all regions of this enormous country mm. so it's it, that's a very interesting process and that's my my focus more than election right. but that this progressive young man boric now won the election means that this process will get strong support that's from the right. uh, from that's the government right. which is of course really important
1: mm. well i'm following it too and working with some to push for the right to housing to be included in the new constitution so We'll see.
0: We'll see. Mm. But now we're going to be in Europe and up here in the north where the winters are dominating. Oh, like, yes. I mean, back in your place, there's like 30 minus and
1: Crazy a lot of... Crazy polar conditions in parts of Canada right now. Uh, in the east, in well, we call it the east, but in Ontario, super cold, minus 30, minus 35 with the wind... Celsius. I saw Crazy. I
0: saw you posting an image from a bus, a night bus in Toronto, and the image was like from a medieval painting almost. So it was like really tired, dirty people sleeping on top of each other on mm-hmm. on, uh, on this bus. Mm-hmm. So this is also an image of uh, the north today. So much poverty out there. And we're actually going to start off talking about that today with our guests, because we have a guest, we
1: do. and our guest
0: is coming in from Brussels, Belgium, but she is from Dublin Ireland. Sorcha Hi. Edwards. Hi
1: there. Welcome.
0: Welcome. We have met many times in, in panels talking about the housing issues. I mm. know you've probably met uh, Leilani many more times than me, but we've met a few times, but you are the General Secretary of Housing Europe. Indeed. A lobby organization for a member organization of uh, social housing companies in the european union um, socha how do you see this crisis of people sleeping out in the streets and and this is it is alarming, isn't it?
2: It's unacceptable it's really as you say in the when you come back to the north, you just came from Chile where um yeah, huge inequalities. That's that's a given. But um, when you come back up here and um, we're living in um, basically the richest part of the world, the luckiest part of the world, it's it's just unacceptable to see the the levels of, of housing exclusion that we are seeing and the fact that they are growing. and And I think I think what's painful about it is that we know it's a it's a choice. You know, we can do things differently. Things can be done differently. And I think that's what's so frustrating. and it's something that can really spiral even more out of control if, if we don't turn this around. Um, and soon. Mm
1: -hmm. I think that's obviously completely right. I Mm. completely accord with what you said, Sorcha. It's, um, of course, the stronger wealth, the more wealth that's created in societies, the more homelessness and unaffordable housing and housing precarity we're seeing. So there seems this direct relationship. I certainly noticed it when I was rapporteur and I continue to notice it. So Canada, for example moved from 10th largest economy to 9th largest economy during this pandemic period. And we are seeing unprecedented amounts of homelessness. This image that Frederick so eloquently exposed of these people using the public transportation system as shelters, right? As a home. That's where they sleep in the evenings to keep warm. And of course, it's it's, it's political choices to benefit a few and harm the many. I mean, it's seems clear to me the question is how do we undo this mess?
2: yeah I mean I think that's a really um insightful point that you're making the richer we get the more housing exclusion we see I and mean, we have the intelligence we have the tools to direct that investment direct that money and it's time to do that it's time to take take back control I think um what we are really seeing is just I don't know if you um if you think about the um, the big social networks and so the, the issues we have and the fact that social networks are the ones that in some cases running elections or having running how, how we are living, controlling how we are living. And and when we see them going face to face with policymakers, we just see how out of touch policymakers are, how we're basically run, they're running rings around the, the public sector. and And this is how I see housing as well. It's. The public sector, the, the the public interest, public regulations have not kept up to date with the trends, and it's like they're running rings around us. And often it's they're even being facilitated by, by by the entities that should be working in public interest. And and it's really there there are no more excuses for that. We have to get up to date when it comes to housing as a, such a crucial. Part of, of how we live, what shapes our societies, what shapes us. And we have to catch up and bring our policies up to date for that. the housing that people need, the housing that cities need. The excuses are really wearing thin.
0: But this is your, I mean, you're in Brussels. You're up against the, the politicians uh, with these issues. And, and we actually had in this podcast, we had uh, the vice president of the European Commission, Franz Timmermans, as a guest. He mm. was very critical to the policies that he himself had been a part of before the you know letting the market solve everything so there is like some conscious of that we did something wrong and we should do better can you feel that this is happening now that is there is a that the politicians actually Mm -hmm. are are trying better now
2: yeah um so we're definitely see, seeing pockets of where it's happening. I, I think from, yeah, from the EU perspective, I mean, this is obviously, this is my role on a daily basis. It's to monitor EU initiatives, EU funding opportunities, EU legislation for local housing providers and, and create that dialogue between the local level and EU level. And definitely, I think when it comes to a lot of the, the economic governance, it has been very much focused on enabling the market, having a le- so-called level playing field, checking that the so state aid rules, competition policy, you know, it has been very much that way inclined. And it, it feels like often the social housing providers have sort of tumbling between all of that from right to left and they haven't um, been recognized. They've sort of slipped between the cracks. And let's see now, now we've come to a crucial like point. We're looking at post pandemic economic governance. So as we saw quite radical changes when it comes to state aid rules to allow the member states to invest more because we had this economic lockdown. And now, over the next um, year or so, we're going to be looking at this, how is our post-pandemic economic governance going to look? And I see this as a real opportunity for the EU to really look at where Values have fallen through the cracks in the name of a level playing field or um, in, on the name of a free open market. So I have, have a lot of hope to create this redirection over the next um, six months, year or so. I think it's an opportunity. I mean, we, we saw during the pandemic just how, how much we depend on, on, on our government. I mean... Overnight, businesses were closed down and people were were paid in the most um, ideal scenarios. People were compensated for that. Schools were closed down or open at, at the based on evidence. You know, it was all based on real time evidence coming through from hospitals, coming through from testing centers. So we saw that that the state can really step in 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 matters of public interest. And now we have the evidence on housing too. We have the evidence on how much it's costing to put people in temporary accommodation. We have the evidence on how many people are um, overcrowded, how many people are living in inadequate housing, how many people have um, mental problems because of loneliness, how many people are living in homes that are are much too big and would be happy, happier somewhere else. We have that evidence. So I think we have a taste of what evidence-based policymaking can look like from this pandemic. So why not continue and bring it in to where we really need it, housing? But have housing policy based on evidence and forecasts.
0: Mm. It sounds, I mean, it shouldn't sound radical, what you're saying, <laughs> but maybe it is. I mean, the European Union maybe from a North American perspective is like a social democratic project. But from our experiences over here is that it's a very neoliberal project. It has been very extremely neoliberal, uh, the European Union. It's been like the market, the market, the market, the market. It's been like the mantra of the European Union. So that's what I'm a little bit fishing for. Is there a shift coming up now? Mm. Because it sounds like a natural thing.
1: Well, just a couple of things. I I do think a lot of listeners would be surprised to know how neoliberal Europe is, uh, because it's not the external perception. But for example, you know, the statistic that in the last 10 years, uh, institutional investment in housing has increased by 700% in Europe. Right, So that's something people wouldn't think of, that there are these institutional investors. And they've gone after your sector in particular, Sorcha. They've gone after social Mm. housing in Europe, purchasing, for example, social housing uh, in Madrid. It's one of the most famous cases. And then using that as political leverage to keep tenant legislation very weak. I mean, just incredible stories. But I do see... I start have started to see, just as an external observer, some movement. I'm interested to know what you think. So recently, I think it was just last week, um, the German uh, national level government made a firm commitment on the floor of their parliament of, of the Bundestag of ending homelessness by 2030. And they said it firmly. Now, of course, that's going to intersect with social housing, it must, it must mean a greater commitment to social housing of some sort. Um, So for me that, and when a big country, Germany, pulls a lot of weight in the EU, to me that signaled something, but I'm interested to hear your perspective, Sorcha. Um, Firstly, it's very
2: important to point out, I mean, the examples you're giving about a sale of of social housing, for instance, in, in Madrid, this is based on local regulation and local decision making. And there were actually policymakers who were brought to trial because of, of some of the decisions to sell. And I think the local regulation I mean, recently we've seen, for instance, in, in Rotterdam a limitation for investors to, to buy to let. You know, this local policymakers cannot wash their hands of this. This is a multi level governance. This is what this is planning laws at the level of um, villages, cities, towns. This is. Um, um, national legislation on how they also treat um investment coming in, how they um how they uh, make obligatory quota quotas of social housing for, for new developments. So much of this can be regulated at um, at national level. And capital, okay, you're talking about the, the increase in, in investors. Of course capital and these um by its nature um it's it wants to multiply. And if it finds the opportunities to multiply, it's going to keep doing that. And this is what I mean about policymakers just not being up to date with the new reality and the need to to make sure we have protection and buffers in place for citizens against these funds. I mean, we've also heard from members of ours who are competing sometimes with funds for access to land to build social housing or or um, affordable housing. This is This is not acceptable and this can be regulated at local level. So I think then at eu it's a much more a delicate um let's say almost uh, like a to be a detective to figure out okay what are the hooks at eu level that can that can really then make a difference of course if you look at the capital markets union facilitating this free movement of capital what ways we could um we could impact that we look at how um short term um, lets are treated at european level in the relevant directives we look for instance at state aid rules and how they are um, perhaps discouraging um, local authorities to invest in social housing in different ways because of their complexity and because of the, the lack of clarity about who target groups should be. So it's a, it's a really delicate operation at EU level, but it, you really have many different levels of governance that are, are at play here. But definitely you mentioned um, the commitment now to ending homelessness. This is, is very promising and i think it's something as you say definitely interlink with um, with social housing and uh, i think what what's what's going to fall in, into place now is is really focus on where have we seen really good collaboration between social service providers and social housing providers to make sure they can really address those living homelessness and make sure they're t- put the right interventions in place so that tendencies can can be sustained i think what it's going to hopefully result in is a real a better mapping of of what's going on why people are becoming homeless and um, how many people are homeless and what type of improvement in the service um is needed um around europe to address it but yeah. obviously i mean i mean it's it's not just about you know the people are homeless we have to the, the numbers that are in unaffordable housing are much, much, much greater. And and the, if we want to turn off the tap that's producing homelessness, we have to look at the bigger picture. So we have to be looking at those macroeconomic policies. We have to look up at the EU legislation and the regulations that that we spoke about. But definitely it's a positive move and that um, all member states signed up to that commitment. And it's going to definitely make a difference. And, and social housing providers are, are on board as well. Pushback Talks is produced by WG Film.
1: To support the podcast, become a patron by going to patreon.com slash pushbacktalks or follow us on social media at make underscore the shift and push underscore the film.
0: And now I've known Leilani for quite a few years. We made Push and now we, we, we see a lot of dark realities. And I think you also, in, in your work, you, you meet a lot of this darkness so where do you see the light? Where do you, when, do, when do you say, shit, this is inspiring? <laughs> when do you get the extra smile on your face?
2: Well, first of all, uh, I should acknowledge what a, a great contribution Push has made, because it's, it's managed to explain what is a very complex issue in a really accessible way, but most importantly, showing people that they're not alone, you know, that this shame, and I know coming from Ireland, it's really, you know, shame if you don't own your own home taking away this shame of, of people feeling isolated because there's, there's a lot of shame linked to that. And I think um push has done really great work in highlighting this issue, so well done on that. I think it's one of the biggest contributions to this public debate that has been made. But um, you asked me where, where I see the light, and actually it's the complete opposite Um what we see every day because we are working with the social housing providers. So we see, you know, 46,000 of these local organizations every day achieving amazing things whether it comes to integration of elderly whether when it comes to you know tackling fuel poverty so it's actually the opposite we are every day seeing amazing examples of what can be done in housing to have great societies and then it's almost like a shock then when we look at the with <laughs> look at the figures and we look at the amount of people who just aren't reached by that, and the amount of people in exclusion and um, in um, overburdened, burdened by the by the costs, people on the you know on the street, and at the same time we know that actually you can have amazing housing projects that fit people's needs. So actually it's the opposite. We are we are seeing every day this I- inspirational housing because you work
0: with social housing organisations yeah. around mm-hmm. Europe, yes. yeah. Mm-hmm.
2: And then this is why we started. Then uh, so we have an observatory, which then that's a little it's my my colleague um, Lice Petini running that. So that's where she's saying, you know, keeping track of the trends and what's re- what's happening in our what are the housing realities. And there you see that okay, on one side you've got these this great work that's been doing these well-meaning organizations. I'm sorry, I shouldn't say well-meaning, but well-regulated um, organizations. <laughs> But then it makes you think of Simon Bolivar, you know, that you're plowing in the sea. If it's a tiny percentage, you know, at the moment, it's about 12 percent of the total housing. So if if that percentage um, compared to what's going wrong on the other side, on the complete free market, you're, you're really plowing in the sea. It's what you're doing is almost uh, pointless. And the bigger the problems get, the harder it will be to survive as well, because people will say, well, we have these socialising organisations, but look at the mess of the housing we have. We need a different approach. You know, this is why, you know, you're here.
1: Yeah. So that people know the scale of the problem in Mm -hmm. Europe, it's it is huge. I mean, more than 160 million people, I think, are having trouble basically affording housing more than... 80 million or more than 85 million, I think, live in poor quality housing. So, I mean, these are big, big numbers. One of the things that worries me, Sorcha, Mm -hmm. is I think there are really good and cool things happening in a jurisdiction, you know, a little social housing program here, uh, a really interesting piece of legislation regulating financial actors over there. And what worries me is that there isn't enough zoomed out, what is our overall strategy for dealing with the many housing issues that are confronting every city and every society in Europe. And I mean, I mean, of course, I'm wedded to human rights approach. I think it's sort of how I left the mandate as UN rapporteur was to suggest to states that what they really need, governments, what they really need to do is take a more zoomed out approach, look at the whole housing system and develop a strategy for ensuring that these numbers are... Decreased every year, every year decreased, not increased, and that without a sort of human rights structural change strategy, we won't get there. Uh, I don't know if you have the same because you're sitting there mm. seeing all these small things happening, but where's the where's the whole? Yeah, it's spot on, and this is why indeed um, we saw this need for this um, systems approach
2: and the um, Housing 2030 initiative, indeed, where we. So Housing Europe teamed up with the UNECE, Housing Land Management Committee and UN Habitat to say, "Okay, the solutions that are being put forward to solve this growing housing crisis, which is producing the figures that you just mentioned, there's no quick fix to that. You know, we we started this around three years ago and there was a lot of articles coming out of the top. So the quick fix to the housing crisis, every few days you would see one article and it was, you know, either build more or usually build more, build, build, build. And then we, we were just so frustrated with that because we know how complex it is. First of all, there's no perfect housing system. Um, they need to be continually adapted um, according to the needs and the, the future needs. So we... Um, but at the same time, you have, as you said, really some really clever policy ideas that have really stood the test of time throughout Europe in different, in different countries, in different jurisdictions. And... The idea of 2030 enable this systems approach, take a step back and also realize that without this overarching guide, as you say, this housing as as a human right guide and this political will, and without putting this overall system in place at the highest possible level, let's say at the level of a region, at the level of a country, it's pretty difficult to really make progress. So... This is what Housing 2030 did to so get over the frustration of, you know, journalists just producing clickbait and, you know, with this one quick, you know, quick fix. It was saying, OK, look, there's a huge amount of knowledge in our universities. Why not like, tap into all of the those academic experts that are constantly um, studying housing? and tried to bring that into the policy debate. So we worked with some amazing experts, um, Holger Volbaum, um, Julie, and uh, Michelle Norris, to sort of um, tap into all of that expertise based on what, what has actually worked in housing systems. And actually, so you mentioned that, okay, these are isolated examples, but you do have some... Really clever funding instruments or governance instruments that have worked for four decades in a, in a very large geographical area, and that are worth really honing in on. I mean, just what really came to light, for instance, was the way to fund social housing in France based on people's savings. You know, and what an opportunity that that would be now if we were to do that everywhere, because inequalities have really increased during the pandemic. However. For a certain group of the population, savings have really increased. So, just clever ideas that um, that could actually work. But as you say, if it's not if it's not this overarching guiding principle, this human rights approach, and this recognition that listen, the market is not going to do this for us, then we're, we're not going to get very far. Hmm. But
0: yeah, when I was looking for this light, <laughs> that's my little job to look for the light. Of course, <laughs> the 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 light we see from a little bit from the outside is then, of course, the resistance boiling and cooking around Europe. Mm. Uh, I mean, of course, Berlin as a spearhead in some way, Barcelona, uh, but also big protests in the Netherlands and um, many other places, and also in Ireland. You can see that movements are moving politics in some way, and Germany is the most obvious. So how do you... How do you see this, Lelani? How do you mm. see it, Socha? Uh, where are we? Is yeah. this changing the map?
1: Oh, for me, there's no doubt that it's the movements that will change the way this all works, and this all happens in Berlin and different parts of Spain, where the, where the you know movements are really strong now. Netherlands, as you say, are making legislative difference. It's not just that they go onto the streets and are marching and chanting. They are making very concrete demands for structural change, which is legislative change, so that they have a legislative framework they can then invoke and use um, to make sure that people aren't living homeless or unaffordable rents or can't pay for the heat. So I put a lot of stock in those movements, but I still want those movements to be asking for the big piece, which is what the Chileans are doing. They're asking for the big piece, the constitution. Now, in Europe, most constitutions include the right to housing, but most governments or national level governments don't have a big... Strategy that says every policy we enact, every law we enact, should be toward social well-being, the human right to housing. That's where I'd like to see the movements go.
0: Mm. Are you going that way, Sorcha? Housing Europe?
1: So I'm just looking a little bit at the last
2: Eurobarometer. Indeed, in Ireland and Luxembourg, the housing was mentioned as the... So, there were countries where people were asked if housing is uh, among the top two most important yeah. issues facing the country. So you can see that even the eurobarometer is starting to see that, mm-hmm. and very often it's it's linked to the cost. So there's a clear link. if you look at the eurobarometer, so this is a clear link to the overburden rate and the excessive costs. But we do still see a big generational divide. Ah. so the the fact that you have um, and we outlined this in our last state of housing report as well it's like um, almost second-class citizens. You know, tenants are becoming second-class citizens and homeowners are very comfortable with a very low overburden rate in, in many constituencies. So how are we going to deal with that, that split in society? So largely people going out on the street are, are those who are excluded. How can we really bring it, the recognition that actually this is everybody's problem. Yeah. It's not just the people that are in that. It's I think the pandemic grew the awareness around homelessness. That's why I think we managed to have that commitment to end it. It's not just the person living homeless, and that it's their problem, it's everybody's problem. And the same as housing, it's like, yes, there are certain groups going out because there are certain groups in difficulty, but there's other <laughs> cohorts who are perfectly happy and happy with their growing equity. So uh, it's a challenge for politicians now is to, to bring it to the mainstream to get this recognition that they need a change in direction. I think a way to do it could be You've heard the expression, housing is healthcare, which came up again during the pandemic as well. So the the fact that, you know, even if, if you're looking at the economy of a city, you can really bring down healthcare bills by, by investing in housing or people being, you know, uh, prescribed uh, reno- housing renovation uh, for their arthritis, you know, or, you know, this link being made. But it's not only that. Housing is um, equality. Housing is... Um, can be a way to good housing policy, can be a way to tackle loneliness, can be a way to tackle youth integration in employment, can be a way to tackle so many things. It,
0: I mean, it can also bring hope hope into society because mm-hmm. when when people are living under a lot of stress around their homes, it's very hard to plan for the future. That goes for everybody. Also I mean, especially for younger generation that we want to be taking us to the future. If they are under an extreme stress, uh, and you told me about your your niece in in Dublin, mm. Mm. what's what's up with her?
2: Well, I think like many um, young Europeans, their lives are on hold to a certain extent because let's say a rent in downtown Dublin would be over would cost over two thousand euro. How many people can afford that? Uh, and but what's happening is people are being entrapped in um, very high cost rental and lose any hope of ever becoming homeowners. I mean, and my niece is living at home with with my father, who yeah, who is of that generation who could who could act, very easily access home ownership thanks to government programs at that time because they carried out large house building projects for new families being started. So a completely different reality, you know. But we see this generation gap now. Mm.
1: Yesterday night, my, I was feeling very tired and I knew I had a heavy day of work today. So I said to my family, my son and my partner, oh, uh, you know, I think I'm going to retire. And my son turned to me and he said, you can't retire, he's 16 he said you can't retire you haven't made it so that i can have a decent adequate home when i'm older you have to keep working
0: <laughs> 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 oh and here i am trying to get money and then i think you're spending your time in the wrong way yeah.
1: oh, i think he <laughs> meant i need to i mean need to make the world a better place oh, yeah, like that? Yeah. I thought,
0: doing that podcast That's... will never make the money so you can buy him yeah. a new no no home. no he
1: wasn't talking about money he was talking about Make the world a better place where young people can afford oh, houses. That's yeah. sweet. sweet.
0: That's sweet. A little oh. sweet, a
1: little bit like, oh, dear. He doesn't think I'm successful.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> <laughs> he knows I'm not because he's, he's at age 16. He knows that he's not going to have an easy time of affording any kind of housing, rental.
0: Yeah, so how do I mean talking about the young kid in Canada right now? Mm-hmm. You live in ottawa the capital of canada how do how does they see their future uh, i mean your daughter just moved to toronto to start to study
1: yeah so i mean it depends on the age and what's happening right now because of covid if you're young and in like high school like my son it's very difficult to think one week ahead let alone your future, you know, because he doesn't even know, like, today's the first day he's back to school in person since the holidays, they had four weeks online learning, you know, so it's COVID has really changed how young people are thinking about future and what future means future means tomorrow. <laughs> so it's a bit, uh, it's a little bit tragic on the housing front. My daughter is in Toronto, the most expensive one of the most expensive cities in Canada, and she wants to be an actor. And she knows that, obviously, she'll she'll struggle to get any acting job. If she's lucky, she'll get an acting job. She'll never be able to afford to live in the city where she needs to be in order to get an acting job. So she's relying on on me and my partner and our ability to bring together resources to help her. That's her reality. And, and she knows that's not sustainable. So then there's this pressure in her. Oh, my God, I have to get an acting job really quickly. But that's not how it goes. She's only 18, you know. So it's tough. It's a tough yeah. world for young people. Hard to have dreams.
2: The EU has actually made this uh, the European Year of Youth. So I think it's really time for for a youth movements. So we'll, we'll do what we can as well to really put the, this uh, generational divide really up there on the agenda mm-hmm. and how as you say frederick from everything for mental health um, giving people aspirations allowing them to focus on their careers it's how the housing problem is having such a, an impact on that mm-hmm. on that
0: for our for our youth mm-hmm. so 2022 is the year of the youth in the european yes. <laughs> union wow that's cool <laughs> it is
1: cool it is cool
0: i mean what if the young people could start off with an um, a place to live without commuting for hours to their schools. Wouldn't that be a good thing? And that wasn't a radical thing when I was young. It was kind of a normal thing. Even if it wasn't a luxury apartment or anything, it was quite simple. But everybody had a place to stay. It wasn't an issue at all.
1: Not at all. I mean, when I was young, I was in Toronto. I had no problem finding share accommodation with friends I mean, it wasn't wasn't luxury it was like pretty basic sometimes even horrible but still it was Absolutely possible, and and we didn't think twice about it. So I want our young people to be able to dream again. I really feel their dreams have been stunted it's by COVID, by the housing crisis, by the climate crisis, and so I love this year of the youth. Let's let youth dream yeah. again. You know, and, and we've got I mean, the we festival.
2: Had... Oh, sorry, freddie we've got the International Social Housing Festival, which was originally the idea of young students in Amsterdam, and it's coming to Helsinki. In, um, in the middle of, of June and this we want to make this one of the core topics and I know there's um, really excellent uh, Finnish organizations working for accessible affordable housing for students in Finland so we will be able to shine a spotlight on, on what's possible.
0: Yeah I mean we had a podcast with a student in Turkey it's become so ex- expensive to live for the students so they are, they had a movement where they were sleeping in parks it's I mean it's extreme almost everywhere and and we can also see that the, the big guys like the Blackstones of the world, they're also moving into student housing because it's such a good business.
1: Especially in Europe. They're really taking over the student housing in parts of Europe So and in the UK. So yeah, it's a good focus.
0: <laughs> Sorja, mm-hmm. how do we fight the hedge funds coming in and snapping up our student homes? How do we fight that?
2: Tax rules for a start. I think we start to really... Um load on the tax for those investors that are just extracting value from the from our homes. Um we see some moves in that direction, but but not enough. As I say, we see housing co-ops, socializing providers building uh, student housing. We need to provide the land to them. Make sure they get the tax breaks to access the land or are given the land to to construct. I think um it's not a real mystery, you know. I think the, the, the tools are there, the knowledge is there, it can be done, it is being done. And just, just allowing a quick book to be made at the expense of, of our students, is, um, it's unacceptable.
0: Mm. Okay, good. Tax the rich. Mm-hmm. That's, that sounds like a good slogan. <laughs> yeah. And tax breaks for those who build for young people and for people mm-hmm. in need. That's, that's a good start, Leilani. Are you do any more on your list for 2022?
1: I think I've already said what I think should happen, which is rights-based housing strategies that tackle all of these issues as a whole.
0: Is this something that you will think will happen in the in the European Union, Sorcha, that the human rights perspective now will be stronger in the new guidelines that you are, are writing there?
2: I think the, the fact that we've got this commitment to end homelessness, it's going to really point us in the right direction we also are led by france we will have a um a ministerial meeting with ministers responsible for housing on the 8th of march and this meeting hasn't taken place in a while so that can can also be um, a real trigger for a change in direction but it but it's up to all of us to raise our voices on that and to make sure it
0: happens, we have to keep mm-hmm. the pressure mm-hmm. up. That's why I think the inspiration from Berlin and Barcelona, others or Amsterdam, is so important. That the pressure needs to be there. To otherwise, the politicians will run in a different direction. Yep. So, can we keep mm-hmm. the pressure up, oh. Lilani?
1: We can keep the pressure up. There's no choice, and it's this is about accountability. Governments are accountable to their human rights commitments. And that's what the social movements do. They keep them accountable.
0: So that's like a very good ending line. We will <laughs> keep them accountable and we will <laughs> keep hunting them. And you, Sorcha, you will keep working hard for yeah. in housing Europe and, and, and to keep the pressure.
2: Yeah, and and actually as I, I said a little bit earlier, I think also what, what we need to do is take the how we handled the how the pandemic was handled was really based on bringing in evidence, bringing in experts. You know, we saw experts being brought up and, and given the floor, you know, experts on disease, on infection, speaking to the public. And I think this is what we need to do in housing as well. Bring the evidence to the fore, bring the experts. As as I mentioned earlier, we brought in experts like um, Julie Lawson, um, Olga Valba Michelle Norris, you know, who have been gathering evidence and uh, managing evidence on housing for for so long, bring these people to the fore, uh, so that decisions around policymaking are not made in dark rooms, <laughs> or with brown envelopes, or yeah. in complete with a complete lack of transparency. We have to shine a light on on um, on what can be done on those islands of hope, but also shine a light on on the, the transactions that are, are, are being made and transactions that are, that are making large parts of our population second-class citizens. And I think we can try to, to draw on what we learned from this horrible pandemic in terms of transparency of policymaking.
0: So you are hopeful, Sorcha, for the year of the youth. Have
1: to be, <laughs> Have to be.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Leilani, are you hopeful for the year of the youth?
1: I'm looking for my hope. <laughs> yeah, no, we have to be hopeful. I mean, it's we have to believe change is possible. Surely, I mean, we know this. Th- we can't. This is not a place to, to 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 remain. Society's writ large. Everything is. The world's a mess. From the climate crisis to the housing crisis to the pandemic. Right. So obviously, this isn't good enough. Ah, there's my hope.
0: That's good. I think uh, hope also lies in understanding things. Yeah. And, and that's why we are doing this podcast, to try to, to keep understanding what's going on. And if we understand it better, it's easier also to, to change it. That was the whole ambition with Push, of course, the film. Thank you very much for your good work, uh, Sortsha Edwards, uh, Housing Europe, and thank you for being on our podcast.
2: Thank you guys for all the work you're doing for, for those people in, in housing
1: exclusion. It's really, really important.
0: Thank you. Leilani, how do we fund this funny podcast?
1: I read a statistic the other day that said there are one million podcasts One million podcasts, and we are one of them. And like all podcasts, we need resources. And the way in which we get resources is through supporters, people who think what we're doing is important and the conversations we're igniting are important. So you can become a Patreon by going to patreon.com and looking for Pushback Talks. And every little bit helps. Even one euro can help us produce this podcast because... It's not cheap to produce a podcast, but we do it because we think it's super important.
2: It's a great tool. I, I would really encourage people to do that. I've, A um, few Irish comedians during the pandemic really helped me through and uh, and joining and supporting them on Patreon was a, was a way to acknowledge that. So I'll be jumping on to, to your Patreon as well. Too. Thanks, Sorcha. Cool. That's, that's cool. nice.
0: And we have listeners in 124 countries, which I think it tells a story about how global this housing issue is so let's keep spreading the podcast also to more friends out there in more cities more countries and also send us light send us inspiration on what you're doing that what do you think is really cool happening around where you live Thank you very much for being on our show. Sorcha, Leilani, we will speak soon again because we have more interesting stuff coming up. Thanks
1: so much, Sorcha. So nice to see you
0: guys, to talk to you. Thank you. Goodbye.
1: You are listening to Pushback Talks. If you like what you hear, be sure to subscribe and leave a review. Want to support the podcast further? Become a patron by going to patreon.com slash pushbacktalks.